Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. By the way, just a reminder, we've got a new podcast out. It's called Science Revolution with Tom Hartman. And wherever you find fine podcasts, it's weekly. It's a, it's a weekly podcast of basically the science news of the week. I want to get into what's going on with the press right now. And I think this is a, a real story. There's a new report out. This just came out a couple days ago from Northeastern University's School of Journalism. They analyzed 10,000 news articles about the 2020 Democratic candidates. You know, our field, which is now, what, 12, I guess, with a couple of billionaires in the crowd. They came out of 28 different news outlets. 10,000 news articles. And what they found was that policy now takes a backseat to scandals and viral moments on the trail. This is from the research itself, from the report. Quote, this tendency in turn allows important issues such as health care, climate change and reproductive rights to fall off the agenda every time a Trump media cycle emerges from some new outrage or a flavor of the day controversy pops up. They said basically substantive issues have disappeared from coverage. They said for several generations now, keep in mind, a generation is 20 years. Several generations is 40 years. See, this all started with Reagan. This all started in 1987 with Reagan blowing up the Fairness Doctrine and deregulating ownership of newspapers and radio stations and television stations. And then in 96, changing the telecommunications laws, um, the Telecommunications Act of 96 that allowed massive consolidation, you know, the, the, the creation of these giant television and radio empires. They note that during the 2016 campaign, the three networks all together during the entire campaign broadcast only 32 minutes of in-depth campaign reporting. In other words, issue-based reporting. ABC World News, CBS Evening News, NBC Nightly News devoted nearly three times as much coverage to the Hillary Clinton email story, which now we know in retrospect was not a story. During the 2016 campaign, all three networks for the entire year and a half leading up to the campaign devoted only 32 minutes to coverage of the issues. And again, devoted nearly three times as much coverage to the Hillary Clinton email story. Now today, ABC NBC, CBS, no network evening news coverage of trade in the context of the election. This is 2016. No coverage of health care in the context of the election. No coverage of zero of climate change in the context of the 2016 election. Now, you would think if, you know, actual issues were being discussed that Hillary Clinton would easily, I mean, hugely easily won the election. Although Donald Trump was lying about policy, he was saying he was going to get, you know, better health care than Obamacare and all that kind of stuff, and that he was going to bring back jobs by changing our trade policies. So, you know, maybe, I don't know how it would have worked out if there was a better coverage, but I think people would have had an opportunity to ask him, how are you going to do that? And for, and for which he really didn't have answers because he was lying through his teeth. There was no mention of drugs. There was no mention of poverty. There was no mention of guns, literally zero, no mention of infrastructure and no mention of the national deficits. Instead, the 2016 election coverage focused largely on Trump's sex scandals and Hillary Clinton's email scandals and Donald Trump's constant trashing of other Republicans. 
And it's happening again. In 2008, there was only 32 minutes of coverage of actual issues in two years. Columbia Journalism Review. The New York Times ran as many cover stories about Hillary Clinton's emails as they did about all policy issues combined in the 69 days leading up to the election. Of 1,433 articles mentioning Trump or Clinton, only 60 mentioned any details of either candidate's positions. Only 60. Our press is badly broken, and they are completely ignoring the policies of our Democratic candidates. And some of those policies are great. On the line with us right now is David Brock, the founder and chairman of Media Matters for America, the author of six books, including The Fox Effect, which is absolutely brilliant. MediaMatters.org is the website. You can tweet him at David Brock DC or MMFA, which is the Media Matters uh, Twitter account. David, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure. Craig Silverman is this talk show host in Colorado and Denver, and he was on a Salem broadcast station, and he's claiming that they took him off the air because he was basically not doing the Trump line with regard to impeachment. He was questioning this. The management of the station has come out and said they took him off the air at the time that they did, because he just announced that he got a job on another station on another part of town, and therefore they were going to pull a plug on him. I don't know which is true, but we've got that, and we've got Shepard Smith talking about the impeachment and getting all kinds of flack from the president for that. I'm curious, in your mind, what role do media takeovers play in facilitating the rise of the kind of authoritarianism that Donald Trump is embracing around the world? We've seen virtually all the media in Hungary, for example, Viktor Orban's Hungary now, owned by Orban's oligarchic buddies. What's the relationship there, and what are your thoughts on these things? Well, I definitely think there's a relationship. I mean, just take the Murdoch empire itself. What's happening really is that, you know, all these conservative-owned networks are having a really hard time covering the impeachment, including Fox, and that was why Shep Smith had some problem. And I don't know what the situation was with this radio host exactly, but it wouldn't surprise me if they're trying to enforce kind of a pro-Trump line in these media. But it's difficult because the facts aren't really on the side of the Trump forces. And so they're down to, you know, circulating conspiracy theories or saying that the witnesses are just hearsay when, in fact, we now have a witness who has firsthand knowledge. The Trump defense is very weak at this point. I think you're seeing that through the media. Fox is struggling with how to cover this because there is actual news here. So they're forced, on the one hand, to acknowledge that there's news. But, you know, they're trying to figure out how to sandwich in some of the pro-Trump spin, but the pro-Trump spin is weak. It's inconsistent. president wants his allies to say one thing. They seem to not want to say that. They want to say they want to go in another direction. So it's a little bit of a, it's a, little bit of a challenge for these conservative media outlets right now, which includes you know, a, a, most of talk radio and includes Fox and includes Sinclair, the United States. So I think that's the fundamental dynamic we're seeing. The uh, Salem Network is the one involved in the Denver thing. Talkers Magazine puts on this annual convention for people in the talk radio business, and I've attended them for, you know, 15 years or so. And then they have luncheons, and one of them I was sitting next to a uh, vice president. I believe he was in charge of programming at Salem Radio Networks. And I pitched my show to him. I said, you know, we're not Christian unfriendly on my show, but we've got a progressive political perspective. And he very candidly said, you know, there's no way you would ever be put on Salem Network. Our money comes from Bible publishing. We are a conservative company, and we are only going to put conservatives on the air, period, full stop. A U.S. senator and myself and the billionaire co-owner of another network of radio stations, I don't want to name this one in particular because this was in a private meeting, but that company owned uh, something over 800 radio stations. We specifically asked him, you know, would you consider putting progressive programming on any of your stations? Hundreds of his stations were carrying right-wing programming. And he just came right out and said, I will never put anybody on the air that wants to raise my taxes, basically. You know, we only program conservative. And then you look at the rise of Murdoch. I mean, recently, I think it was maybe a year ago in the Sydney Morning Herald, Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, 
wrote an article, the headline of it, the title of it was, uh, Rupert Murdoch is the cancer at the center of Australian democracy. And he talked about how Murdoch owns over half the media in Australia now, the print media, and has corrupted Australian politics and then moved to the UK and repeated that and corrupted their politics and then moved to the US and repeated it again. This media landscape is increasingly looking like the product of oligarchy to me and one that would not be uh, friendly or functional in a highly functioning democracy, something that the founders might be pretty horrified by. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on all that. I mean, you, you've been right at the center of all this with Media Matters for a long time here. Yeah, well, that's some years ago, I wrote a book called The Republican Noise Machine, which had a lot to do with the subject you're raising now. And that was one of the reasons why we started Media Matters, which was back then kind of a voice in the wilderness, blowing the whistle on the fact that, yeah, media ownership is part of the problem here in terms of the Republican Party line coursing through all these networks. And, you know, we saw when Sinclair was trying to expand its footprint, one of the things that Media Matters was able to do through its monitoring was to expose, they call them must-runs, the editorials that they run across the Sinclair network, and they're verbatim. And it becomes a situation where, you know, right-wing media is change in the Trump era to become almost a propaganda outlet for the White House. So it's not just conservative media. It's really in the service of a particular leader and political party. And I think that's somewhat new. Fox has morphed from being, you know, obviously extremely unfair and unbalanced from putting out just conservative views to really slavish devotion to Donald Trump. And we can see that affecting the way people are taking in the information about impeachment. You've got two different worldviews. You've got two different realities playing out there, which is very different than was the case in Watergate. And even in the Clinton impeachment, Fox was just getting its sea legs then. But now you can tune into Fox and get a completely different reality than what is happening actually in the hearings itself. Where does this take American democracy and what and, and do you see any kind of a solution for this? I mean, is this Howard Dean, for example, on, on Chris Matthews's show suggested uh, this was years ago uh, when he was running for president, suggested that it's time to say that at law that media companies have to be only media companies, that MSNBC, for example, could no longer be owned back then. It was General Electric by a company that wasn't a media company. And, you know, basically breaking up the big media conglomerates all around the country and that we need to basically undo the 1996 Telecommunications Act and go back to local ownership rules. Is that a solution to to part of this problem? Well, certainly that could be a solution. And I think that, you know, we'd obviously have to have different political actors in power to put that on the agenda. But that is certainly one answer. Another is... I think just the constant effort that we do at Media Matters to shine a light on what's going on on these networks, the idea is that propaganda, when it's exposed to the public, you know, it has less of an effect once they realize what it is. And that's what that's what our mission has been. But it's an uphill battle because Fox is more powerful today, really, than it's ever been because of its alliance with Trump and because Trump watches Fox and then tweets what he sees on Fox. And at the same time, Fox is taking the lead from Trump. So it's a vicious little feedback loop where you don't really know which one is dictating the other, but it's a combination of both. And it's very corrupt. And it's very, as you said, it's a real threat to democracy. And some of us, Al Gore and others, have been calling this out for some time. You can't really have people making correct decisions in the voting booth when they're consistently misinformed. And of course, it goes beyond just the platforms that you mentioned, but it goes into these social media platforms, too. And and there are some proposals to break up some of these big tech companies, partly for the same reason that they refuse to accept responsibility as publishers and allow and foment misinformation to be reaching out to the public. And we saw that in 2016. And I'm afraid, you know, we're going to see a lot of that in 2020 as well. Yeah. Serious, serious concerns. Uh, if you want to keep track of it all, MediaMatters.org is the website. David Brock, the founder and chairman, also the author of six books, including The Fox Effect. David, thanks for dropping by today. Thank you very much. Good Appreciate it. Me too. 
With all the problems unfolding for the Fed and central banks, you may be asking some very important questions. How close are we to the next economic collapse? What will it look like just before the crash? And how can I protect my investments and my retirement? There are a few people better suited to answer these questions than ITM Trading's chief market analyst, Lynette Zhang. Her fact-based research on the markets, currencies, and economy is second to none, and her videos have prepared people for almost every major downfall in the U.S. economy this year. If you haven't heard of Lynette Zhang and ITM Trading, I highly recommend looking them up. They're pioneers in economic education, and they're experts at creating strategies to protect you against the next inevitable crisis. If you're looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile economy since 2007, go to youtube.com slash ITM Trading. I recommend learning as much as you can before the next crisis hits, so you can make the most educated choices while there's still time. That's youtube.com slash ITM Trading. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So how do we deal with this other than obviously supporting independent media, you know, wherever you're hearing this program right now? But what else? Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's up? Thanks for watching Free Speech. Unlike the Republican Congress, the Fox followers, the, the cult, they're following what they think is the only reality. They think we're the ones that are deluded. And that's what makes them even scarier. So what do you do about it? I mean, do you, for example, if you've got somebody on trial who, who is, you know, wearing a MAGA hat every day as a defendant, do you keep Trumpies off the jury? I, yeah, you keep them off the jury, but I don't know what you do because facts don't matter to these people. Yeah. Yeah, tragically. I mean, you can lay out all the facts you want. They'll just say that it's fake news. Yeah. And then that's their out. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. It's pretty breathtaking, actually. Stevens County, the county I live in, went for Trump 75%. Whoa. Do you think that's so going to happen again? I don't know if it's going to go that strong, but he's still going to take this county by a large amount. Yeah. I talk to these people all the time. I mean, I have a, I have a, a friend of mine, he's a 61-year-old black man that's a Trump supporter. I talk to him every time I see him because I told him he's in the gig, man. He, he, start, he just Is he watching Fox out. News? Is that it? Uh, he, doesn't, he told me he doesn't even have a TV, but he's a staunch evangelical, and he likes what Trump's doing about abortion. Oh, he's an evangelical Christian, and so, oh, it's all allergies. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I told yeah. him, I said, I said, I guess you don't care what Trump does as long as he outlaws abortion. And he goes, we have to save the unborn. But let's not save the kids who are born. Once they're they're born, we can forget about them, right? Yeah, apparently. (laughs) Apparently. Mark, thank you. Thanks for sharing that story with us. Tom Harbin here with you. So how do you have a democracy if the people are not informed about the issues? This has been the case since the 1990s, really, the early 1990s. I mean, we had a fairly robust issue-based campaign in 92 with regard to NAFTA. But that was because Ross Perot was on the ballot. If you're old enough to remember the election in 92, Ross Perot was out there saying, you know, NAFTA, there's going to be this giant sucking sound to the South and all our jobs are going to go away and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I don't recall any other issues that clearly delineated the differences between George Herbert Walker Bush and Bill Clinton from 92 outside of NAFTA. And and, and they both supported NAFTA. I mean, George Herbert Walker Bush wrote NAFTA. You know, it was his administration that wrote NAFTA. The negotiations started under Reagan. This was a Republican initiative to basically make the world of trade safe for big multinational corporations. Reagan started it. Bush wrote it. Clinton endorsed it. And here we are, right? And then Trump ran against it because Americans know that we got screwed by NAFTA. When NAFTA passed Congress, it was a majority of Republicans voted for it, a majority of the Republicans voted for it, a minority of Democrats voted for it. So, you know, this is a Republican initiative Donald Trump, by taking the Democratic position on trade, I think, you know, helped himself tremendously. And because he was so successful at seizing the media cycle, he could insert issues and get them covered. But most politicians are not that media savvy. And the media is going out of their way to largely ignore these issues. And I don't have an easy answer for how we force them to start paying attention to these things other than possibly breaking up the big media, you know, going back to saying you can't own a television station and a radio station and a newspaper all in the same town. You have to pick one. You can't own, 
you know, a, a thousand radio stations or 300 television stations across the country. You have to have regional or, or even statewide ownership or majority ownership of media. This is what the law was prior to 1996. And I think it's one of the reasons that we had, you know, pretty good diversity of opinion in our media, although it, it was starting to go downhill very, very rapidly following, you know, the 1987, following Reagan blowing up the Fairness Doctrine, which required news organizations to actually provide real news as the cost of doing business. And then we get this just like crazy stuff. I got an, an, an email, or actually Barney Rubble got an email from FreedomWorks from Noah Wall, their, their vice president. It says, Barney, imagine your family and friends coming to your house this Thanksgiving and being harassed by an angry liberal mob outside your home. Pretty scary, right? Well, that's exactly what the radical left wants to do to people who support conservative causes like you and me. The only thing stopping that nightmare scenario from becoming a reality is your right to privacy, which is why you got to do everything you can to protect it. Submit a comment to the Trump administration and tell them to protect your privacy rights now. You click on that and it takes you to a fundraising page for FreedomWorks. Make a donation. Representative Democrat, Representative, see, they can't even say Democratic. They're still following Joe McCarthy's shtick. Democrat Representative Joaquin Castro has already released the names and addresses of conservatives in his district. And you've seen the terrorist group Antifa violently attack Trump supporters. That's why FreedomWorks Foundation is fighting tooth and nail to protect your privacy from these deranged extremists. And I'm hoping you'll help us do it. Right. I mean, this is the stuff that passes for policy? This is the Tom Hartman Program. In the Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation in Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It by Nolan Higdon and Mickey Huff. And this is from the foreword by Ralph Nader. Ever since the few began to control the many, disinformation, fabrications, and distractions have been used to shape consent, impose submission, and maintain domination. Whether by the invoked authority of God, the divine right of kings, the dictatorial embodiment of a fatherland, the dictatorship of the proletariat, or the tyranny of commercially managed marketplaces, the casualty of such control has always been the ability of ordinary people to give voice to their own realities, needs, demands, and grievances. Given the inherent pragmatism of the human mind, the oppressed have often found it safer to believe rather than to think, to obey rather than dissent. Today, such a path is reinforced by a plutocratic political economy that allows corporations to dominate mass media, education, and the production of knowledge and memory. Human history, however, has not been without its visionaries, seers, and prescient intellectuals, poets, artists, thinkers, and philosopher rebels. Every major religion admonishes its, its adherents not to allow the merchant class, with its singular focus on aggregating profits at the expense of truth, compassion, and self-restraint, to amass too much power. Such instructions have emanated not from revelation, but from ethics learned via the daily experience of living in community with others committed to the common good. Unfortunately, it has not been the transactional incentives of commerce, but the cooperative bonds of community that dominate the most significant acts of life in the United States today. The dystopian scenarios portrayed in George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World look like understatements compared to today's plutocratic deployment of communications technologies, many of them developed by taxpayer-funded government programs and grants. The ultimate success of top-down censorship is self-censorship by the people. The same holds true for mass surveillance. From radio and television to the Internet and smartphones and all the video platforms and apps in between, commercially controlled media have used seduction and addiction to lure users to increasingly stare into screens and share personal data and location, thus becoming complicit with authoritarianism and mass surveillance. In the process, the population has become fact-deprived and over-entertained, with lowered expectation levels and reduced attention spans. These technology-driven changes have distracted people from their rights and powers as citizens. As authors Nolan Higdon and Mickey Huff write, long before Trump's candidacy, ratings drove programming and news. In the process, 
celebrity, entertainment, scandal, crime, disaster, and spectacle clearly dominated over substantive reporting and public interest advocacy capable of questioning and countering abuses of corporate power and government authority. Trump, they noted, came right out of the omnipresent corporate commercialism. Deadly degradation of media is everywhere. Fueled by Madison Avenue's promotional perfidy, the junk food industry, bypassing parental authority, has lied its way directly into the stomachs of tens of millions of children, creating an obesity epidemic with its attendant diseases. Alternative facts, anyone? 45 years ago, venerated CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite called the three minutes or so devoted to a serious news story merely a headline service. If anything, the situation has worsened since Cronkite's time. Gone are the fairness doctrine, the right of reply, and any pretense that the Federal Communications Commission is regulating the broadcasters according to the 1934 Communication Act standard of the public interest, convenience, and necessity. The takeover of hundreds of newspapers, local television stations, and radio stations by corporate profiteers is still worsening. These corporations loot vulnerable media operations by cutting out reporters, investigative journalists, whistleblowers, educational content, and local coverage. Magazines are shrinking, going out of business, or just migrating to online-only versions. Social media cannot generate such content in addition to other shortcomings. Young people today are becoming increasingly illiterate. They spend more time staring at screens, but ultimately read less long-form content unless forced to do so for classwork. Fewer people are showing up for town meetings, marches, demonstrations, and rallies, in spite of the ease and immediacy of communication enabled by the Internet. The so-called information age has become the disinformation age, with the corporate media's exclusion of the civic community being one of its most devastating triumphs. In the 1960s and 1970s, we could not have succeeded in advancing standards for public health and safety, labor, and environmental integrity without the help of mass media reporting on public campaigns and congressional hearings, or without large audiences tuning into programs such as The Phil Donahue Show, which dedicated airtime to discussing our investigations, reports, and exposés. Now, it is not just corporate media, but the Congress itself that is increasingly shutting out citizens' groups. The United States of Distraction by Higdon and Huff. So would you like to watch the Tom Hartman program, all three hours of our program, anytime you'd like? Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. And you become a supporter of the program through Patreon. You have access to the full three-hour show, anytime you want, and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, Patreon.com, slash Tom Harbin. Thank you. Tom Harbin here with you, and what do we do here with all this? By the way, have you heard what is happening in Kentucky? Speaking of the media not informing us, I'm guessing you haven't, because it's not, you know, one of the top five stories, which is all the corporate media cover. I mean, they take five stories every day and basically recycle them hour after hour after hour with panel after panel after panel of so-called experts. And this isn't probably one of their top stories. But Andy Bashir finally, you know, his his opponent, the Republican governor of Kentucky, finally said, OK, you win. And Bashir is going to become governor. A Democrat is going to become governor of a state with a Republican-controlled legislature, House and Senate. And so, sure enough, they're doing the same thing that they did in Michigan, Wisconsin, and North Carolina in 2018 and 2016. They are passing a law to strip the governor of his power. I mean, it's mind-boggling. This is from uh, Stephen Wolf for Daily Kos over at uh, Daily Kos. GOP leaders in the Kentucky legislature are pushing a bill that would effectively remove Democratic governor-elect Andy Bashir's control over the state's Department of Transportation. The latest move in an accelerating trend of Republicans stripping power from Democratic governors before they could take office. The legislation would limit the governor to nominating a transportation secretary from a list chosen by a new board whose nine members would be selected by the Kentucky Chamber of Commerce. (laughs) Oh, God. David in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Hey, David, what's on your mind? Well, Tom, I'm wondering if the impeachment 
proceedings go to the Senate, mm-hmm. the Democratic candidates for president, do they have a need to recuse themselves since they have a vested interest in the outcome of the trial? Well, yes and no. If the outcome of the trial decided the outcome of the 2020 election, then I think that you could build a case. But frankly, I think whether Trump is convicted or not, the impact that that will have on the 2020 election is going to be really hard to predict. If he's if he's convicted, then a whole brand new set of questions comes along. You know, how does he spin this? And does this does it actually make him more powerful? And what if he refuses to leave office, number one? Or B, if Mike Pence replaces him and then Mike Pence says, OK, I'm picking up the Trump mantle and I'm going to bring in, you know, so and so as my vice president and we're going to run for, you know, and, and but we're going to run on the Trump ticket, essentially. That may increase the probability that Pence gets elected. You could build a case. In fact, there's some Democrat. There was, there was just one Democrat from, uh, I think, from Michigan, the Michigan area, who just said, you know, I no longer support impeachment. I'm now in favor of censure, uh, because they're afraid of a scenario just like that. On the other hand, if he's exonerated or not exonerated, he'll claim exoneration. But if they if they can't get a majority in the Senate to impeach him then, you know, he's going to say, hey, complete exoneration, just like he said when Robert Mueller didn't indict him. Now, Robert Mueller didn't indict him because the Department of Justice told Mueller, you can't indict a sitting president. But, but that, that doesn't seem to make any difference. So anyhow, Edward in Sierra Madre, California. Hey, Edward, what's up? I mean, a corporate media, I mean, my God, it, it's, it's stifling free speech because reporters can't ask the hard questions, or they'll get fired. They can't follow up with people that need to be asked the hard questions, or they'll, they'll lose access. I mean, like you were saying, we need to reinstate the fairness doctrine, and we need to break these people up. We need to break these corporations up. Excuse me. They're not people. Yeah. Um, another thing, I mean, I, the, I, I used to be able to listen to your show, right, when it first came on, on my car radio. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you're, I'm in LA, Sierra Madre, but now you're back on, but for a long time, we lost, like the, we've, we have lost the only progressive radio station in Los Angeles. We're talking LA, and we've got no right. progressive radio Yeah, station. well, you're listening on, uh, oh, you're listening on Progressive Voices, the, the guy before you was yeah, on Sirius okay, XM. You're back, I should rephrase But that. yeah, we're on KPFK like, in Los yeah. Angeles, and we're on SiriusXM nationwide, but but they're, you know, when, when Air America rolled out, they were on 54 stations, but they were renting those stations from Clear Channel, and Clear Channel, you know, just started taking them off those stations exactly. once Mitt Romney exactly. and Bain exactly. Capital took over Clear Channel, and and then, you know, the, that was the end of that. So yeah, I, I'm with you. Edward, thank you. Thank You're- you for pointing that out. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Bob in San Jose, California. Hey, Bob, thanks for listening to AM 910. What's up? Well, I was going to say, I've been working in radio and television for 50 plus years as an engineer. Okay. And I can, I can tell you in the Bay Area where I've been, there have been at least two TV stations that have historically, and this goes back to even before Reagan, Within the first five minutes, you can count on seeing a car wreck, flames, police tape, flashing red and blue lights. Sure. They, uh, well, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Was, five minutes. Well, if, if Avoid television. Yeah, if, if it bleeds, it leads was a phrase That's that right. I heard back right. in the 1970s, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, yeah, um, you know, in, had, in news in Michigan. Sure. We've had two, two TV stations at least slugging it out for who can get closer to the ground in the gutter right. with that. Right. They don't want to talk about what's happening in City Hall. They don't want to talk about a whole lot of other stuff. It's entertainment. It always has been yeah. in that regard, because it's the National Enquirer. Now, I, the stations I worked for were either public television stations or they were the equivalent of the New York Times. They wanted to talk about the economy. They want to talk about other things happening in other countries. But that doesn't catch eyeballs in the same way. And if you're really caring about ratings, and and it's not so much about money, it's just how many viewers do you have? That seems to be, you know, Put on those flash, flashing lights, you know, put on the police tape and the flames. Yeah, and that, this is, this is why news should not be ratings-driven. 
News, oh, news no, should be obligatory. I, now, I used to I used to rib a couple of the engineers at, at at these stations because I was part of the Society of Broadcast Engineers, and I used to say, "Why do you guys replace your blue tubes?" Now, in NTSC television, blue is only 11% of the picture, but the tubes and the cameras are very expensive. I said, you could save a lot of money, just don't replace the blue tubes. And it took a while to figure out, what if you take blue out of the picture? Red and green is what you see. Add those together, you get yellow. And I said, your pictures would be more honest. And they about killed me when they figured it out. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> like yellow journalism or, or yes. like, a, you know, cowardly afraid to talk about. It would be honest. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's a good one, Bob. Bob, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for sharing that with us. I appreciate the call. Ivan in Bartlett, Illinois. Hey, our, Ivan, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Did you hear about Buttigieg scamming black voters in South Carolina? What? He the claimed, story? Yeah, go ahead. He claimed 400 prominent black folks in South Carolina endorsed him. Turns out half the names on his list were white, and most of the other names on the list never endorsed him. Now, Tom, if this were Bernie, he would be attacked all over the media. Yeah, you're right. With Buddha Judge Crickets. Yeah. Yeah, there does seem to be a media bias towards so-called moderate candidates, you know, candidates who are taking corporate money. And he's had a few other missteps, you know, with regard to the African-American community. And one of his ads, for example, there's a stock photo that's actually from Kenya, you know. Right. Um, that's, part of, that's part of that same report. Yeah. On the other hand, I think he, you know, with his Douglas plan, he's making a good faith effort to reach out to the black community. I just don't think he's doing it, you know, with great competence. And and we'll find out, you know, when it, after, you know, he, right now he's banking everything on Iowa and New Hampshire. But then it's, then comes South Carolina, which is 30 percent black and about half of the Democratic electorate is African-American in South Carolina. So, you know, we'll see how this shakes out. I well, th- imagine if this was Bernie, Tom. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm agreeing. Or if it was Elizabeth Warren, you know, Bernie is being largely ignored and, and Warren is being largely attacked. I'm with you. In fact, Louise and I uh, were at, I keynoted a fundraiser for one of the local Democratic parties here night before last, which was just great. It was a wild day. Friday night, I was in Los Angeles for Bill Maher's end of the year party. And it was great to see Bill again and to see some just just some wonderful people there. Then I came back up here and keynoted this Washington thing. And they went through the list. They said, who are you supporting for president? Just applaud. And Bernie got wild applause. It was pretty impressive. I mean, everybody got some applause. And, you know, there's obviously fans across the spectrum. But the progressive candidates got the majority of the applause, which I thought was really a good thing, basically. Nancy in Minneapolis. Hey, Nancy, what's on your mind? So when I'm driving around, I'm noticing that people don't have bumper stickers on their cars anymore. I saw more bumper stickers on cars during the Bush administration. And in my opinion, I think people are afraid that we have been so divided. And I really believe that if the Democrats and the progressives in this country start putting their opinions on their cars, they're going to reach not only the apathetic, but also the Trumpledites who can't handle the truth. And if they see, if the Trumpetites see a wave of blue stickers, they're going to shrink. They're going to crumble. They like to think they hang out with bullies, but they're a bunch of cowards, and they can't handle being isolated. My representative is Ilan Omar. She has more courage and bravery in her little toe than Blotus has in his whole orange carcass. And I think we need to follow her, not be afraid to exercise our First Amendment rights, and say what's on our mind. And but, you know, you, you raised a really, I think, important point, Nancy, and it's, it's one that I've had people call in and say that they had an Obama sticker on their car, bumper sticker on their car, and they, and they, and they got keyed, you know, their, their paint got scratched. Oh, yeah. And... I think that I think you're right. I think our our politics have become so polarized that I mean, it it used to be that you could kind of get a sense of how things were going. I mean, even in the 2000 election, you know, uh, Bush versus Gore, I remember seeing all kinds of Bush bumper stickers and all kinds of Gore bumper stickers. And you you kind of count them up, you know, and we were just kind of looking at it like, oh, you're on that team. I'm on this team. But I think that Trump has turned this into war, and people feel mm-hmm. like they're at war with each other, and, and they're afraid to proclaim which side they're on for fear that the other side is going to come after them 
you know, with, with claws out, with fangs out. Well, I'd rather sacrifice my car than my constitution. There you go. There you go. So we've got to get some bumper stickers out there. Nancy, thank you yeah. for the call. Well said. David in Seattle, what's on your mind? Yeah, I've been wanting to talk a little bit about what you brought up a year ago. I was listening to your radio, and you, you said something about you know, the, the Christian right you know, and uh, how you can't help but notice that you know, one of Trump's towers is uh, the address of 666 Trumping Avenue. So it got me thinking about what is, what's happening in our country you were talking about this morning, and that is we have to, to give me another definition of what might be you know, termed the Antichrist. It's not a person. Not necessarily a thing, but it's a state of mind that we are in our country right now. And, you know, it's just, you know, when you're looking at Trump, he is basically like a, a Trojan horse to which the, uh, the wishes of those who contributed to Citizens United into uh, taking over the media and pushing these agendas you know, that Trump has been putting out on the table. We are seeing, I think, in energetic form how we are transforming the mind state of the people in our country out of a state of security, uh, being able to uh, take care of ourselves into a state of fear and immobilization. So it's psychological warfare, but using also religious overtones to it, too. Mm. So I don't know. I just uh, wanted to see if you could weave that in and see, see if that makes any sense. Well, yeah, this is what's happening. This is the takeover. And in part, I mean, you know, the media part of it is, is particularly large. I, I was in a meeting. Uh, Randy Rhodes was there. There were progressive talk hosts who met with a bunch of senators in Washington, D.C. some years ago. This was like maybe a decade ago. And our pitch to them was you guys need to get the left wing billionaires to start buying media. And, uh, you know, I remember one senator in particular, one Democratic senator in particular saying, oh, no, 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 that, you know, it's a that would be wrong. Right. We shouldn't be we shouldn't be trying to politicize the media. And we're like, the right is already doing it. Oh, no, no, no. Those are just businessmen trying to make money. And here we are. Right. This I mean, this is the failure of, of the imagination of of the left as much as anything else. Colleen in Long Island, New York. Hey, Colleen, what's on your mind? Oh, hi, Tom. You know, all this back and forth about, well, I want to call it brainwashing, but brainwashing through the media. You know, I, where I live, I call it Trump land because you have to be very careful what you say and who you speak to because these people really do buy into everything. On and Long Island. On Long Island. And it's very disturbing because, for instance, a man who works on my car, his wife is Puerto Rican, and he's all for Trump. And, you know, I'm like, you know, he's white, but his wife is Puerto Rican, and he, he doesn't see anything wrong with being all for Trump. And I even get emails now, I'm getting a lot of emails, how the Democrats are in a panic over something with the Vatican, and, you know, this is going to blow them up, and, you know, his party. Right. And if I'm getting these emails, and I don't subscribe to anything, that even remotely goes near the Republican Party. I wonder who's who else is getting, you know, these kinds of emails and this kind of, I want to say, edging you and kind of nudging you, you know, right. towards looking at it from my point of view, as opposed to thinking for yourself. Yeah, it's happening all over. And this, again, this is the right-wing takeover of the media. And this, this is the, the influence that it has. You know, right-wing hate radio is everywhere in America. And Fox News, you know, MSNBC, you have to pay an actual premium price for. You have to pay an extra five bucks a month or, you know, whatever it may be with your local cable system. Fox News is free everywhere. It's ubiquitous. These, and, th- and this is part of their strategy. Colleen, thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. How is the right-wing takeover of America and the Trump presidency changing America? Do you think it's going to be permanent? A very thought-provoking and concerning article uh, over at Politico. It's titled Combustible, Trump's Pivotal Moment with Iran. And points out that Iran is experiencing some considerable internal turmoil. The same is true both Lebanon and Iraq, which Iran largely controls or has considerable influence over. 
and that our policy toward Iran has basically, you know, by pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal and reversing the process of improving our relations with that country, we have just wiped out any ability to play any kind of reasonable role in that area. I'm reminded of the old metaphor from the Cold War, and I don't know where it originated, but I remember it from when I was a teenager, that, you know, us in the Soviet Union, we were like two guys in a basement uh, where there had been a gasoline leak, and so we're standing in a in a basement room that's got an inch of gasoline on the floor, and we're standing there in the gasoline, and we both have a book of matches, and each one of us is threatening to light a match. That's the situation that we have in the Middle East right now between, on the one hand, Iran and their client states, basically, or their affiliated states, Iraq, Lebanon, and Yemen, and on the other hand, um, uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, maybe Qatar, um, you know, so, and some of the other Sunni states, and and the United States stepping in on the, on the side of the Saudis and the Israelis, and you know we're all in this room filled with gasoline holding these matches. So we've got that kind of just obscene behavior on the part of the Trump administration. Brett McGurk, uh, who was uh, the special envoy overseeing the coalition to fight ISIS for the Trump administration, said, and I quote, there is a real risk that over the coming months, Iran does something in the Gulf or elsewhere, and you've had no deliberative process of which the president's been a part to assess courses of action. On the line with us is Jamal Abdi, the president of the National Iranian American Council, NIAC, N-I-A-C. NIAC.org is the website, and uh, you can tweet him at jabdi, J-A-B-D-I, or at NIA Council. Jamal, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back, Tom. Your thoughts on my setup here from this article in Politico. The situation continues to get more and more dangerous. What we saw in Iran last week with protests, the escalating back and forth of threats, this is all predictable. This is all part of the maximum pressure campaign. Iran is under pressure from the United States. There are these massive sanctions in place. There's a near total embargo on Iranian oil. And we are seeing the Iranian government take countermeasures and lashing out. And even with the the protests inside the country, I think Mike Pompeo and others in the Trump administration thought this was some kind of victory. I don't think 200 people being killed in the streets is a victory. I don't think that's going to lead to a democracy. I also don't think it's going to lead Iran to capitulate. I think it's actually going to trigger Iran to continue to escalate its own pushback against the United States. So this is this is a combustible situation that's getting ever more combustible right. every day that it continues. I, I, I had this conversation with somebody, it might have been you, um, sometime in the last four or five months, uh, just wondering out loud, has there ever been a time where severe sanctions have actually altered the behavior of a government? Uh, severe sanctions being imposed by the United States. It certainly didn't change Cuba. To the best of my knowledge, it hasn't changed Iran's behavior. If anything, it's hardened it. Our sanctions against Iraq killed 500,000 Iraqi kids because we wouldn't provide them with chlorine to chlorinate their water. But, you know, Saddam Hussein didn't change anything. I mean, I. It seems to me like this policy that Trump is pursuing is punitive, but is probably not going to have the result that he claims he wants, which is, you know, to bring Iran into, uh, you know, into some form of democratic governance. Uh, Your thoughts? No. uh, Yeah, you're absolutely right. Sanctions that are aimed at regime change have not worked. I mean, you may be able to collapse an economy, but I don't think there has been any instance Like we're doing with Venezuela. Like we're doing with Venezuela, like we've, we've tried to do with all the examples that you mentioned. Sanctions, far be it for me to advocate for sanctions, but the idea is you have a specific goal that you want. You want party X to do Y, and you're going to impose sanctions with the promise that they'll be lifted if that party actually does what what you want them to do. In this case, Iran actually did what we wanted them to do with the nuclear program and the nuclear deal, and we pulled back on the relief. So now we're issuing these sanctions. It's unclear what Iran would have to do to get out of the sanctions. There's no pathway out of it. And even if they do that, I don't think inside Iran anybody believes that the U.S. will actually make good on its word. So like with Iraq, where we essentially, you know, the United States essentially said our policy is regime change. 
there's nothing Saddam can do to get out of these sanctions, but we're going to sanction him. Well, we saw what that did to Iraq. We saw how it destroyed Iraqi society. We saw the humanitarian impact. We saw the way that it actually enriched the authoritarian rulers of Iraq. And now we're saying the same thing with Iran. You know, it's it's hard to, uh, it's sort of, you know, the dog that caught the car. Okay, now you have these protests inside of Iran. Now what? What are we, what's the idea here? How does this actually get better? Right. I'm not seeing an answer to that question. To what extent is Iran embedded in the political and economic infrastructure of Iraq and Lebanon? And to what extent might those relationships represent the probability or possibility of any kind of conflict with Iran turning into a regional conflict that could turn into a regional conflagration? Yeah, I think that's the nightmare scenario that I think is getting more and more likely. I mean, Iran obviously has a lot of power inside of Iraq, both with the political leadership as well as the security infrastructure and Iranian security forces being embedded there or advising or having these militia groups inside of Iraq. So Iran exercises a lot of power there. And obviously there is protests now inside of Iraq against really the economic conditions, but Iran is taking a lot of the blame for that. And then with Lebanon, you know, Iran's support of Hezbollah gives it serious influence. Hezbollah is its own actor. It's not necessarily a proxy of Iran, but it is a client of Iran. And I think, you know, the really simple way to view the Middle East is right now it's a contest between Iran on one side, along with these, whether they're proxy groups or the political leadership in the case of Iraq or an insurgency in the case of Yemen, uh, against the U.S. and its allies, Saudi Arabia, Israel, the some of the Gulf states. And we are actually seeing this problem between, you know, this proxy war between the two parties, whereas in 2015, the hope was you, you put out the nuclear uh, fire, you know, you, you take that off the table, and then you actually enable some opportunities to find resolutions to these other issues. Actually, get get Iran and Saudi Arabia to start talking to one another. Eventually, get Iran and Israel to start, start talking to one another. Uh, by abandoning the nuclear deal, we're now hardening those divides, and there's no clear end goal in sight other than we win, Iran loses. And if that's going to be the case, then we're going to have to be prepared for this total conflagration and a really costly, either this simmering proxy war or an all-out real war between the two sides. Yeah. And Israel has been making basically peace and pieces, not literally, but is working basically with some of the Sunni states against Iran and now Iraq and Lebanon and Yemen, the basically Shia states. Here we've got this, you know, 800-year-old conflict that is you know, on the verge of breaking out. During the Obama administration, the explicit goal was to bring peace to the entire region and to try and bring people together. Do you know that if there is any Middle Eastern policy that can be defined that has come out of the Trump administration? Have they said out loud, this is our policy, even if they're not following it? I mean, is there is there any sense of a policy at all? Has Mike Pompeo said anything? I think the Trump administration has become a playground for ideologues to experiment with the fantasies that they've had for many years. Or to act out what Fox News tells them to do, it seems. Yeah, the ideological bend of a lot of these advisors who I don't think are operating in any sort of concerted way, so you don't have a real U.S. policy. And then you have, more so than I think any other point in history, personal political ambitions defining what is happening in the region. So, of course, Israel and the the way that Israel, the role it plays in U.S. politics has always been an outsized role. But now you have a president who is just giving things away to Israel explicitly for his reelection, you know, explicitly to try to build support among evangelical and, you know, pro-Israel voters. And I think that sort of that naked politicization, it's also the case inside of Israel with what Netanyahu is doing, facing this indictment and what he may do to try to save his own political skin. So there's no real policy in place other than protecting your own skin if you're Donald Trump or you're Benjamin Netanyahu or you're one of the other players in the region. Yeah, this is, this is, uh, this is not good. I, and I don't see any, anything short of simply praying that in 2020, rather, we end up with a new administration, one that's more reasonable and rational, but, you know, as a result of the elections. Jamal Abdi, president of the National Iranian American Council, NIA, NIAC.org is the website. Jamal, thanks for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. Good Take talking care. with you. 
Dave in Federal Way, Washington, a former intelligence officer. If you're the same Dave, I think you are. Yeah, I am, Tom. Hey, yesterday I drove from Hermiston, Oregon, back to Seattle with a guy who had a Trump 2020 hat on. Uh-oh. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was a very interesting, long conversation. And um, this this commentary that I guess Devin Nunes is doing about, you know, Trump doesn't like foreign aid to begin with, that's all red meat for Trump's base to keep Trump's sure. base there. Trump just um, increased the, the amount that South Korea and Japan have to pay to the United States by 400%. Simultaneously, Kim Jong-un turned down Trump's offer for another summit. Right, and there's a third piece to that too, Dave, and that is that the South Koreans are in talks right now with the Chinese, and there's a big concern that they're going to stop depending, as it were, on the United States for military assistance and go to China. Yeah, yeah, and this is kind of why I like talking to you about this, because I think you actually understand the Trump voter perspective on this. But but the thing is, they're not getting the big picture, but I think you do get it when you mentioned that Israel is bombing the bejesus out of Syria. If we do not give aid, if, all right, if we just go completely isolationist and focus on harassing minorities and veterans and whatever Trump voters like to do, then when these wars go hot, they are going to have to send their sons and daughters to fight them. All right? There's only so long that Israel and, and Saudi Arabia are going to allow Iran and Russian soldiers and Turkish soldiers to dominate that region. Right, uh, especially Saudi Syria, where, where, where Russia has a major military base. The reason why I mentioned Syria and Israel is because this, this all harkens back to the Great Game period when Imperial Russia was defeated by Japan. Saudi Arabia and Israel together could evict they could. They could evict all those Russians. They could evict all those Turks. I mean, they have the from technology, Syria. the money. It, yes, it's from the region. And it's not Russia could face another embarrassing defeat, just like they did against Japan. And this could throw the world into turmoil. I mean, this is some serious stuff. Yeah. Yeah, what people don't get is the whole idea of the Department of State and the United Nations. I mean, obviously, the State Department is as old as the country. And our first Secretary of State, I believe, was Thomas Jefferson. But the Department of State is is an ancient thing. But using it for the purposes of diplomacy and getting involved in a whole bunch of countries around the world where it doesn't seem like we have direct interests, the, the principal purpose of that. The reason that we so radically realigned our international relations after the 1930s was because of World War I. You know, after World War I, you had Woodrow Wilson trying to create the League of Nations. The Republicans fought him and fought him and fought him, and finally it failed. And so then after World War II, they were like, okay, you can do the United Nations. You know, we could have a U.N., and Harry Truman brings us back. All of the stuff that Trump is taking apart was put into place to prevent World War III. Yes. Yeah. And Trump voters, they don't get it. Okay. It, this transactionalism, if, if that's what you want to call it, that Trump yeah. is engaged in, is only going to um, cause the loss of life of a lot of people that did not, that are going to die prematurely. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but that's exactly where this is going. If you are the parent of a young man between the ages of 18 and 23, more or less, if my recollection is correct, or maybe it's 17 and 23, then you should be thinking real seriously about what happens if the world descends into World War III and the United States has to institute a draft to create a large enough army. And perhaps a young woman of that age, too. I mean, you know, now that women are allowed in combat, the draft could extend to women as well. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that Trump voter I, I drove back with, he kept saying, well, America's weak. I'm like, no, I don't even think you understand what weakness is. A right. draft would be a significant emotional event in America right now. Oh, yeah. Okay? That's, I mean, you know, we are not accustomed to that, all right? Russia is not Baghdadi. Russia is not ISIS, okay? Right. No matter how much you want to pretend they are, Russia can put a... <laughs> It's a very lethal adversary, all right? Yeah, they could drop and a nuke on New York. Well, there's no way we're going to go against Russia without a draft. That's all there is to it. There you go. There you go. Dave, thank you for the call. Yeah, and they, they've got you know a massive army and a, a, a very, very competent military apparatus, and they are no dummies. I mean, you know, Russia defeated, we, we like to take credit for defeating Hitler during World War II, but had Russia not jumped into the, into the battle, into the fray, we would not have won. Hitler would have won. 
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. You are listening to the program where despair is not an option. Join us. Get out there. Get active. We'll be right back. Steve in McLean, Virginia. Hey, Steve, what's up? Yes, earlier a call it says something about the um, the religious right and the and the what Perry had said about uh, Trump being the chosen one. Right. And you'd said something about what we can do about it. Well, what I do about it is I confront them. I confront them, and most of that's been online. A lot of that's mm-hmm. been on you know on Franklin Green. Do they come back at you with uh, King Cyrus stuff? They have not on that. They have not on specifically on that. Where I've attacked is a lot of things. I mean, I point out racism. I point out a lot of things on that site. And I use links, too, because at least mm-hmm. it gives them something to look at. But the other thing is I have pointed out there's a lot out there on Trump's character, obviously, like the revenge chapter in a book that he co-authored in the 80s where he specifically said that he was gleeful about destroying a woman's life. And that's all i got to say. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Your point is spot on and, and well noted. And I appreciate your, your calling to the program. What a day. <laughs> what a week. Some really, really heavy topics here. We'll continue the conversation tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. What little we have left of it, what of it we can reclaim, what of it we can restore. It's not going to happen if we just sit back. It's not going to happen if we don't get out there and get active. Share progressive media with your friends. Share the message with your friends. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 